Brother Bomeister has involved, been involved in missions around the world in Pakistan and Latin America. He has pastored a Spanish congregation in Sacramento and currently pastors the Rock Church of Lodi in Lodi, California. Very pleased to welcome Dr. Baumeister this evening, this afternoon. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be here this evening, and I'm, I, I am, I'm just blown away by all the presentation, the way the venue, everything. It's um, amazing, and I want to uh, thank um, Brother uh, Rick Mayo for his um, you know, generosity and his um, uh, hospitality. Amen. Uh, the early church was often threatened by those that desired to distort the gospel. The New Testament writers responded to many of these attacks with a call to the preservation of the purity of the gospel message. The Apostle Paul was at the forefront of this warning to the local churches that he had established in his uh, missionary journeys. The scriptural teachings are consistent throughout the whole of the New Testament that there is only one gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They only saw one application possible with this message, and today's pluralistic society and desire to unify at all costs goes in direct contradiction to the apostles' teaching. So I have a question for you to ponder while I'm uh, presenting this uh, presentation on the only one gospel. The question is, does the dialogue with other faiths have any impact on the preservation of purity of the gospel message? The past few decades, inclusive pluralism has become a common theme in much of Christendom. In an age of postmodernism, where truth is relative and based upon culture, groups, and circumstance, the exclusivity of the gospel is not a popular concept. We are not supposed to believe in any objective truths, and every opinion should be shown equal respect. The theological beliefs of the Bible are merely a very small percentage of million, millions of opinions to some, and some of the most well-known current religious leaders have abandoned their beliefs in Jesus Christ as the only way. The Apostle Paul ardently teaches on the preservation of the gospel uh, throughout the entirety of his epistles, with Galatians chapter 1 being one of the most obvious. He passionately and vehemently confronts those that pervert his gospel in any manner, he leaves a reader with a clear understanding of the importance of preserving the gospel that he first taught to the Galatians. The apostle leaves no room for any implication of any alternative approaches to the salvation of the soul. The only saving message is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the past 100 years, there has been a new type of attack upon the purity of the salvation message found in the Bible through postmodern perspectives on truth and the ecumenical movement. The postmodernist views truth as determined subjectively by the individual. There is no such thing as objective, authoritative truth that is applicable to all humanity. Postmodernism has clearly affected many leaders of the mainstream Christian religions. Many have toned down their messages to be non-confrontational and inclusive. They have shied away from holding strong to the Bible as the only pure beacon of truth and all other religions as false. Some Christian leaders have went as far as denying that Christ is the only way to God. And furthermore, others are stating that some are saved based upon their own knowledge of God, regardless if they have obeyed the gospel. In conjunction with the growth of postmodernism, the ecumenical movement has had its beginnings in the 1930s with the response of many Protestant Christian churches of Europe, North America, and the British 
commonwealth. War and the chaos that ensued prompted some Christian leaders to form a new global order based on love, peace, and justice. The Royal Council of Churches was formed in 1938 in Geneva. And today, many of the members of the WCC include leaders from many of the mainstream Protestant and Catholic churches. And while unity and tolerance has become the focus of much of the world's mainstream Christian churches, it has come at the cost of the watering down of theological truths that are vital to the identity of Christian distinctives. I was uh, in a doctrinal class uh, uh, years ago and um, by a well-known uh, professor and evangelical leader named David Barrett. And he asked me what I wanted to do my dissertation in, and I told him I wanted to do it uh, towards the gospel, uh, somehow about the gospel in Latin America. And he said, why would you want to do that? And I said, because there's a great need. He goes, oh, there's no need in, in Latin America. I said, why is not? He said, because in Latin America, they already have the gospel. 99% of the people already have accepted the gospel. And I said, well, that's not how I see it. And so... And that, that's the ecumenical movement. That's, that's uh, most of, uh, uh, many of the Protestant religions out there and Catholic religion have accepted the ecumenical movement. In 1970, Christian scholar and ecumenical uh, proponent John Stott wrote about his concern with the ecumenical movement. He's part of it. But he said, it would be a tragedy if in our desire for their overthrow, the only effective weapon in our armory were to drop from our hands. Talking about the word of God. Stott's comments reflect a concern within the Protestant movement that their embracing of the ecumenical movement would be the demise of their core beliefs and existence. Um, S.W. Arija, a theologian professor and former director of interreligions relations at the World Council of Churches, describes his, his excitement of the inclusion of people from other non-Christian religions at the World Mission Conference in Tamburum in 1938 in the study pr project entitled The Word of God, and the living face of men. In the conference, it was determined that a Christian discussion of living face must be informed by real encounters with persons of other faith traditions. These encounters with people from other religions led the ecumenical movement to no longer define others as non-Christian, but as people who live by other faith convictions. From this event forward, there has been a push towards interfaith gatherings that go beyond Christian circles. 1986, Dr. Robert Runcy, an ecumenical leader in the See of Canterbury, attended a multi-faith uh, gathering which consisted of a syncretistic international convergence of 150 religious leaders from all over the world at Assisi, Italy. The Roman Catholic Pope, the General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, and many Baptist and Methodist world leaders attended the gathering. Also attending the gathering were Shinto priests, Buddhists, North American medicine men, and other ethnic shamans. These Christian leaders came together in unity with these others, praying for the peace of the world alongside other religious leaders who um, practice idolatry, witchcraft, and pantheism. An outgrowth of the ecumenical movement, the Institute on Religion and Public Life, and interreligious uh, nonpartisan research, an educational nonprofit organization created an initiative called Evangelicals and the Catholics Together, the Christian mission in the third millennium. This initiative states, in view of the large number of non-Christians in the world and the enormous challenge of our common evangelistic uh, task is neither theologically legitimate nor a prudent use of resources for one Christian community to proselytize among active adherents of another Christian community. In just a single action, this initiative declared the entire Catholic Church to be recognized as Christians 
and that evangelicals and, and other Protestants should avoid evangelizing them. The influence of the Roman Catholic uh, Pope as part of the ecumenical movement cannot be overemphasized in the statements towards other non-Christian religions. On January 7th, 2016, in a video message from Vatican City, Pope Francis addressed religious people from other faiths, such as Muslims and Hindus, who were among the crowd. In the beginning of the video, the Catholic uh, Pope stressed the fact that most of the Earth's inhabitants hold to some sort of religious belief. He states, this should lead to a dialogue, notice the word dialogue, among religions. We should not stop praying for it and collaborating, notice the word, and with those that think differently, notice the phrase. Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty that we have for all. We are all the children of God. Obviously, the unifying under humanitarian efforts for world peace and unity have led to the racing of theological distinctives and the dilution of the basic elements of biblical truths. With anti-God teachings in our schools, colleges, absolute truth is being abandoned. In 2005, the Barna uh, Group surveyed Americans and found only 35% believe in such a principle as absolute truth. Our pluralistic uh, culture wants to avoid the concept that there really is a right and wrong. The Bible is not quiet about its stance on truth. Relativism is not a biblical teaching. It goes completely against the teachings of Scripture. Truth is always truth no matter what era, situation, or culture. The Apostle Paul's perspective on truth is very evident throughout all his epistles and teachings. So the rest of this paper will concentrate not only on his teachings on absolute truths, but his zeal and passion for preserving them for future generations. The Galatians churches. The churches of Galatia were mostly founded during Paul's first missionary journey in cities such as Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. The Apostle Paul refers to these churches in his epistle to the Galatians. In the first missionary journey, the Apostle preached to these cities and established churches that were predominantly made up of Gentiles. Being a Jew, Paul did not teach these new Christians to obey the Mosaic law, such as circumcision and the Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament. Apparently, he left the churches with leaders in charge, and during his absence, there were Jewish Christians called Judaizers that became, became or began to try to influence these new Christians to adhere to the Old Testament Mosaic law. This became uh, such a common occurrence that we find the apostle confronting similar teachings to other churches by way of his other epistles. The apostle Paul does not leave any room for confusion about his belief in the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He addresses the Galatians that have been swayed by those Judaizers, and he says this, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. To Paul, any addition to the gospel, whether small or great, was a direct attack on the salvation message. Anything different than the gospel that he preached is not another gospel. It's a false message. He implies that the gospel that the Judaizers are preaching is similar Yet since it had been added to, it's not the same gospel. Paul cl uh, clarifies this difference, which is not another, he says, but there be some that trouble you or would pervert the gospel of Christ. The word pervert means to change. Any kind of corruption from what Paul taught was blasphemous. He goes on to condemn those that teach a different gospel. He says, but though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And he repeats the curse to emphasize the importance of adhering to the pure, unaltered gospel message which he preached to them earlier. 
The Judaizers were practicing Christians that held to the belief in Jesus as a Messiah. They believed in the teachings of Jesus. They wanted to maintain the Mosaic law. Paul still refers to them as false brethren. The apostle only sees one gospel. His statement after his pronouncement of the curse, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. This contrasts with the ecumenical movement's desire for peace and unity among all Christian faiths, regardless of their doctrinal messages. Undoubtedly, our pluralistic society would accuse the Apostle Paul as being divisive and judgmental, which is precisely the opposite of what the ecumenical movement is all about. So why bring up the, uh, the ecumenical movement? Because more and more, some apostolics are, are looking for a dialogue with other Pentecostals, or they're looking for a dialogue among other faiths. Uh, so that's, that's, the, that's the reason why I bring this up. The gospel message is consistently uniform within the New Testament books, among its authors, and is evident not only in the Johannine gospel, but it's also found in the Lucan writings and some of the Pauline epistles. In several passages, Paul calls it my gospel. See it in Romans 2, 16. 1625, 2 Timothy 2.8, 1 Corinthians 15.8. And Paul explains the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you were saved. If you keep in memory that I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died, number one, for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, number two, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, number three. He lists these three elements of the gospel. A, Christ died. B, he was buried. And C, he rose again the third day. The churches clearly understood what the gospel was and how to apply the message to, the, to their life. Paul identifies the three elements with the three applications in the book of the Romans. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein, knowing not that so many of us as were baptized in Jesus, into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Evidently, Paul associates Christ's death with the believer being dead to sin or repentance, and Christ's burial with the believer being buried with him in baptism, and Christ's resurrection with the believer being filled with the Spirit as he walks in the newness of life. This teaching is further exemplified in John's first epistle, where he, where he responds to certain members that have left the faith and denied the humanity of Jesus. He reminds them of the gospel message that is found in the three gospel elements, blood, death, them, uh, water, burial, and the Spirit, resurrection. The apostle states, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Apparently, these secessionists believed in the water element of baptism, but denied the very humanity, the blood of Jesus, which was a very basic part of the gospel message. The water and blood are coupled together in the same sense that repentance and baptism produce remission of sins. The blood has always been associated with death and sacrifice. John further states in the book of Revelation that Jesus washed us from our sins in his blood. The writer of Hebrews clarifies this message by stating that we are sprinkled with his blood and washed with pure water. The sprinkling refers to his blood and the water to the burial, such as the buried with him in baptism. Thus, not only is the water an essential part of the gospel message, but the blood is vital part 
of the salvation message. John does not stop at the water. He includes the Spirit as a necessary component of the message. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Cruz associates the element of the Spirit found in 1 John 5 with spirit baptism and water with a baptism in Jesus' name. The consistency of Paul's gospel message is evident in many New Testament passages. In Acts 19, he finds some disciples of John the Baptist, who obviously were repentant, and he baptizes them in the name of Jesus and prays for them to receive the, a gift of the Holy Ghost. He asks Titus to remind the church members of the salvation message of the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Ghost. The gospel message that Paul preached was no different than what other apostles taught. He explains that although he did not receive the gospel message from the apostles, he did receive it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ somewhere in Arabia. Paul argues that the idea that he did not receive it from the Jerusalem elders, but directly from God, proves that this is the only gospel message. Paul's gospel fits in perfect alignment with the apostle Peter. Peter preaching on the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost associates the death, burial, and resurrection with the only gospel message of salvation. He says, man and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and the sepulcher is with us this day. He's seen this before of the resurrection, uh, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Talking about the death, burial, and resurrection. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Philip the deacon preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ to the Samaritans. And the people responded and were baptized in Jesus' name, understanding that they lacked one more step of the gospel besides repentance and baptism. He sent for Peter and John to arrive so that they could pray for them to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later in the same chapter, Philip is found preaching Jesus, which is a synonymous phrase with the gospel message of salvation. After hearing the gospel preached unto them, the Ethiopian eunuch equated water baptism as a mandate and necessary element of the message. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. The eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Paul warns the Corinthian saints to be aware of those that preach a different Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And compares it to how Satan beguiled Eve in the garden. The uniformity of the gospel message among all the New Testament leaders was of such immense importance that is a recurring theme found throughout the epistles. Jude cries for the need for preserving our common salvation. Frederick William Danker, an expert in Greco or Greco-Roman literature, gives the meaning of the um, koinos as being mutual interest or shared collective communal common. Jude is, a complete, uh, is in complete, a complete concord with the other apostles in, refer in reference to the koinos. He commands all Christians to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The defense of the purity and the, and the uniformity of the gospel message was at the forefront of the apostles' thoughts. The apostle had no time uh, for dialogue with others. The apostle Paul didn't. Go around talking to, like, for Apollos, they didn't, he didn't uh, try to have a dialogue with him so that he could find out, you know, if he could meet with him and maybe he could win all his uh, saints. 
he, he, his, his uh, Priscilla and Aquila met with Apollos, but it wasn't until later on, the next chapter in 19, that Paul had no dialogue with any leaders. He went straight for the people that needed the gospel. Uh, the salvation message was attacked since the church's infancy. The apostle Paul often had to instruct, correct, and remind the people of the one true gospel message. The fourth chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians is so packed with the word one as a strong reminder that there is only one message of the church and any abrogation of it is to be treated as false doctrine. He admonishes the church to keep the unity of the bond of peace by maintaining the belief in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He further states that this message is to be, is to be preserved by the fivefold ministry and their teachings to prevent those from being tossed to and fro and carried, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunningness, uh, cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Obviously, the sanctity and purity of the gospel message was such a significant theme in the New Testament scriptures. So is the New Testament gospel message exclusive? Is this pluralistic era in which we live where unity and tolerance is overemphasized at the risk of losing one's purpose and identity? The simple fact of the matter is that the gospel message is both inclusive and exclusive. Many scriptural passages underscore the inclusivity of the gospel. The Apostle John states that salvation is to whomsoever will, and that Jesus died once and for all mankind. He died for all of us, so that the world through him might be saved. He already sacrificed his life for all mankind, and has left a simple portion to us, the decision to apply his death, burial, and resurrection to our lives in obedience to his gospel. While the gospel message is inclusive in its invitation to the entire world, it is exclusive for those only those that apply the message to their lives. It is for only those that accept Jesus because he is the only way. Jesus paints a picture that portrays this great divide. There are two roads of life, and the narrow, straight way is the one that leads to salvation, and only a few will find, uh, will choose that road. His salvation message is only applied to those that accept his name. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The gospel in its purity is what separates the light from darkness, preserves the identity and purpose of the church. The gradual decline of the distinctives of the gospel message will erode the true identity, purpose, power, and authority of the church. The Apostle Paul's call to holding on to those truths is evident in his warning to the Ephesian elders about a great falling away from truth that will take place within the church. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Finally, the notion that there are many gospel messages found in the scriptures has no basis of argument. Paul's aggressive defense of the gospel message throughout most of his epistles shows how important it was to preserve the purity of the salvation message. The apostle Paul's message was consistent with the other New Testament leaders. While Christians are, are commanded to seek peace with all men, clearly this does not mean at the cost of the purity of the gospel message.
We are going to uh, go ahead with some questions now. As you've listened to this presentation, we are encouraging any questions that you may have for Dr. Bellmeister. The way this will work is there are two microphones on either side. We have some young men that are going to be carrying the microphone around. around. So if you have a question, then you can raise your hand, and if you can keep it up, they will get to you or, or put it up to get their attention. They will be ready to bring the mic to you, and we will acknowledge you for a question to Dr. Baumeister. As you're thinking about your questions, I, I would like to begin, uh, Dr. Baumeister, with a question of my own, if I could. The uh, few comments that you ended with, you, as you were starting into your conclusion, you spoke uh, from Ephesians chapter 4 and talked about the unity that was evident in that passage. On page four of your, of your dissertation, you have the statement, while unity and tolerance has become the focus of much of the world's mainline Christian churches, it has come at the cost of the watering down of theological truths that are vital to the identity of Christian distinctives. And my question to you is, with regards to the ideas of unity and tolerance, Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two, speaks of endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then it goes on and it proceeds into what you made reference to later in your paper about the unity of there's one body, there is one spirit, uh, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So given all of that, what does Christian unity look like with respect to the exclusivity of the gospel? How, how does Christian unity and how does Christian tolerance factor into an exclusive message? Uh, the most basic element of, of, um, of the Christian message is the, is the gospel, is the, is the good news. The good news is the, is the uh, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the basis. Uh, there's, there's more besides that. Some people believe that um, they believe that doctrine is, uh, is the teachings of, of one God and, and also uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection and beyond that. That's um, not, that's, that's not doctrine. That's just something else. But actually, the word doctrine means teaching, so all of it matters. The, the, the whole New Testament matters to the point that uh, you see the Apostle Paul uh, confronting these Judaizers that believed in the death, burial, and the resurrection. They believed in baptism in Jesus' name. They, they believed in speaking in tongues. What we see that they didn't believe is that they, they added more to this. They, they had the, the, the Mosaic law that was added to it. And so any abrogation from what the apostles taught was clearly defended. So all of it matters. So it's not just the, not just the gospel message of the um, death, burial, and resurrection, but the whole entirety of the New Testament and Thank Old you. Testament. Thank you. I believe we have a question at the back of the room. Dr. Bowmeister, I appreciate that presentation. Given that the gospel is expressed uh, completely and described in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, what would your explanation be with occasions like Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch where he was only baptized, Acts chapter 16 where they were told to believe and baptize, uh, be baptized, and Acts 22 and 16 where they were commanded to be baptized and call on the name of the Lord. There appears in those experiences that there was no infilling of the Holy Ghost recorded. I'd like to hear your comment on that. Thank you. 
That would be just the same as today. Uh, if you were to go to my church that I pastor in Lodi, we had one guy get the Holy Ghost last week. Um, he's not. He might not get baptized the same day. He might. Yeah. So you, you're not going to see every instance where someone gets both the both elements of the gospel. Uh, we know for without a doubt that it was required because Jesus said, "Unless you're born of the water, or born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God." So it's a it's it's obvious. And with the with the gospel mission, which I presented here, the death, burial, and resurrection. So it is a requirement. But um, but yes, you're correct. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't mention the other aspects of the gospel at that point. But it does show you uh, one of the elements, and um, it doesn't say he was saved at that point. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, again, if you would raise your hand, if you have a question, they will bring a microphone to you. Over here on the left. Thank you. My name is Kenneth Bow. Um, well acquainted with Dr. Bowmeister and want to compliment him on his educational journey and the way he's lived his life. Appreciate your comments. Concur completely. So anything that I'm asking here, I'm asking from a devil's advocate position here. <laughs> uh, only you. probing a little bit on your that. comment. I'm on your side. All right. <laughs> but your opening salvo in the introductory remarks have to do with postmodern perspectives on truth. That's in page three on the final paragraph on your introductory com comments. The Bible through postmodern perspectives on truth in the ecumenical movement. On page seven, you further state in the second paragraph, second line, that truth is always truth, no matter what era, situation, or culture. My question to you is if you were confronted with a true postmodernist, they brought to you questions. That in Acts chapter 2, it was primarily a Jewish church. In Acts chapter 8, it went to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, it went to the Gentiles. So much so that it precluded a conference in Acts 15 that they had to readjust their cultural mores and their identification of what it is. The postmodernist is going to grab a hold of that and say, this is what we're talking about. That when the gospel confronts a new culture, a new way of life, there must be some kind of an adjustment. Now, again, I'm on your side, but I'm asking you, how would you defend what you just presented against a postmodernist that confronted you with the fact that there was cultural adjustment when the Gentiles came into the church? Good question. Um, I've thought a lot about that, actually, and um if you um, if you look at the old, the New Testament, uh, there's there's a there's cultural um, there's a cultural background that it, that is important. Uh, I believe that there's cultural norms that that every society should uh, should respect. Um, there's cultural norms that are here in, in the United States that are different than other countries. Um, there's also also a, a biblical cultural norm that it precedes everything. The Bible's culture is always above man's culture. Man's culture changes. The biblical culture doesn't change. It, but it does respect the culture of the society that it lives in. So, the, uh, so we have Jesus that quotes um, the Old Testament, and he quotes it from the Septuagint. He quotes it in the Greek. Um, he doesn't say the name Yahweh or Jehovah. He, he says Lord. 
he's quoting he's quoting it and out of respect for their own he could say it if he wants but out of respect for the culture of the day he doesn't because it doesn't it doesn't contradict the, the biblical culture anytime the the present uh day culture contradicts the the um biblical culture the biblical culture precedes it and it, it trumps it and so um and so i would say uh there are things that that we have to respect and that's what they did in those days they respected those those uh those societies, cultural norms, and we know that the Apostle Paul did that to the Jews um, at times, and later on he, he, he stopped doing that because he, he found out it wasn't being effective. He tried to do it. He tried to win them. Uh, we know that, um, that he, circumcised, he had one of them circumcised so that he could become uh, um, well-respected among the, uh, the Jews. It, it didn't help, um, but um, so we know, that we, he know, we know he used that to to the availability of, of, of presenting the gospel, but the gospel wasn't changed at all. I don't know if that, does that help? On page seven, that's the primary thing. Truth is always truth, no matter what era, situation, or culture. So, it is, truth, is, truth doesn't change. It's, it, it doesn't change in any culture. It doesn't mean that respecting someone else's culture is that that, that is truth. Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with truth. In my in my opinion, my opinion that is just being respectful of, of society's norms. Um, but there's a biblical truth that never change. All right. Are there any other questions? We have plenty of time. There's a question right here at the very back. You know, well, you study the Word of God, and there are so many different translations. How do we know what's real, which is the right translation, which one is uh, secondary, and, you know, on and on and on, because we use the NIV, and we use the King James Version, the New King James Version, and then there's people that use the, the Message Bible. I, I still haven't figured out that one, why they would do that, but uh, there's a lot of confusion and there will never be unity unless we're all reading the same scriptures. I, uh, I don't know if this has to do with what I'm teaching, but, um, but I, I'm, I'm a very strong King James uh, Version proponent. Um, however, uh, I do look at other versions just to see what, what, their, um, what, their, what their take is on it. And um, usually most, most of the versions state the same thing. Um, I'm more strong on King James Version just because... It has uh, uses over um, 5,000 manuscripts, uh, whereas the NIV uses, I think, two or three uh, Greek manuscripts. And so um, that's just my personal opinion. Um, you could take a class from Dr. Wilson that he has uh, videos after videos about uh, the King James Version and why that's the right one. And um, I agree with him completely. I don't know if that helps. All right. Well Keep this open for some other questions. There's another question here down at the front related to this uh, subject of being only one gospel. Um, Eugene Johnson from Wisconsin. Um, my question, uh, I'm trying to clarify. If you could, um, in the days of the apostles, what um, you have the senders of the message, then you have the message then you have the recipients of the message. The giving witness to the power of the message was the quality 
of the life of the messenger right. in delivering the message. And the person who was receiving the message believed it, that witness, because the power that with, with which it was given. So the question uh, today is, the challenge of the messenger today uh, is being equivalent in, let's just say, consecration, um, being able to deliver the demonstration that must accompany the apostles' doctrine in order for it to believe, in order for it to be, be believed, such as with great power gave a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to, if today's messenger is not delivering the message with great power, then it puts a challenge on the recipient of the message to believe in the power of the resurrection. So that then that puts a challenge on the, on the messenger, yeah. you know, to augment it, to make the recipient receive something from what they, every messenger wants to be received and believed. So do you understand that? Yes, yes, that I agree challenge and that conundrum there? I, I completely agree oh, with you. Would you speak to that, please? Oh, um, I, I, I don't know if I could say it better than what you said. I, I completely agree with you that, uh, that the, um, the messenger has to live a life that's, um, that's holy, that's, um, that's in prayer, uh, with authority, with apostolic authority and results. And uh, we should be seeing that in, in, in every minister that's, that's, uh, that's preaching the gospel. And, um, and amen. I, I'm with you. Amen. I, I don't know. Did I answer? I don't know if that answered. I don't know if it, that was your question. But uh. I believe that many people can break down the theology of the doctrine or of the gospel. But the believability of it by the receiver, I'm saying is somewhat, see, you talk about the pluralistic society, mm -hmm. pluralistic in terms of the receiver, as well as the pluralistic in terms of the messenger. The message is the same, right? It can be pure, mm -hmm. but if the messenger, um, now I'm not talking about cultural and ideological pluralism, but in a sense, the preparation of the messenger to deliver the peer message. So it forces, so with it not being accompanied by apostolic signs and wonders, makes it difficult for the believer or the receiver to receive the purity of the message. So then the messenger sometimes modifies, add to it and so forth in order out of their desire to be received. So I'm just saying that's to me. I agree. There's a yeah. challenge there. You know, right? Yeah. Every one of our churches should have an uh, apostolic movement to where we're having signs and wonders. We should we should have uh, things happening every on a weekly basis, uh, every service, every service, and and that's my prayer. Uh, I just started a, a local uh, a church uh, outside of Sacramento three months ago, and we're having incredible things happening, uh, uh, moves of God, people getting baptized every couple of weeks, people getting the Holy Ghost every week almost. And um, it's just amazing what God's doing. Uh, it's signs and wonders. It's, it's happening. And we're going to see more. And uh, we're seeing great things. Just God's confirming uh, 
awesome things are happening, and, uh, and it should be happening in all of our churches, and it doesn't always happen exactly the way we want it to sometimes, but um, we should be seeing signs and wonders, amen. We should be seeing it follow us. The Bible says so. We have plenty of time for questions. Um, Brother Haddon, if, if, if you can just hold yours for one moment. I'm just thinking of one question to follow up on the last two questions, and it's kind of relating to the experiential component the subjective, I guess, component of experiencing truth. In your first, in, in, uh, on page four, at three and four is where you would speak to the, uh, the postmodern ethos that is very uh, focused on the subjective nature of truth. As Pentecostals, we, we have an experience with the gospel message. And I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more about the, uh, the dynamics, which I, what I'm hearing in the last question is there is a dynamic between the, the objective truth of the message we preach and the experiential nature uh, and the dynamics of that reality, both in terms of the messenger bringing the message and as well as the people who are receiving that message. Can you speak a little bit to the experiential nature of truth in this gospel message? Well, uh, the, the gospel message is by experience. Uh, the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, repentance, the baptism, all of it's experiential um i'm not i'm really not following exactly if you're having if you have a question that's about that yeah the the question is it, it, in the postmodern thinking truth is subjective right. do we have something to say to that because we experience truth oh so what you're saying is there's people that receive the holy spirit and they they have different viewpoints because there's people from all walks of life that have different opinions. Uh, the Bible says in uh, in Joel two twenty eight that He'll pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. And so, um, just because someone has the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean they have truth. Is that is that what you're what, what you want me to get to? Sure. Or or, or just the even the, the nature of experiencing truth versus just having a a, um, a propositional truth base. Is is there a connection that we can make? Yes, it, I mean, and that, in fact, what I was saying was when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. But the, the question is, how are you allowing that Spirit to lead you in all truth? So we have over 750 million people on this planet right now that claim to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues, but not all of them have the truth. And so, in fact, there's very, a very wide uh, variety of, of beliefs out there, but yet there is only one truth. And so uh, the question is, how does that experience of truth have to do with truth itself? Well, uh, you have to allow it to, uh, to lead you and to, uh, to, allow it, to allow you to lead you. You have to follow the word of God and the way, it's, the way it says. And just exactly what I, what I read tonight about the death, burial, and the resurrection is about as clear as anything. You, you can't find a message that's more, more clear than that, that has more uniformity. Uh, all the apostles believed it. Um, uh, all of them taught it. They received it. We hear the message that they preach because we know what they actually said on the, on the book of Acts. So it, it, um, but yeah, there's, there's going to always be a strain there because people, you know, God, God ex, uh, expects us to follow that spirit. And if you don't follow that spirit, you won't uh, reach to the truth. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Tim Haddon from Portland, Oregon. Page 11, uh, the third paragraph down, which really almost the second, reads, 
the gospel message that Paul preached was no different than what the other apostles taught. He explains that although he did not receive the gospel message from the apostles, he did receive it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ somewhere in Arabia. Paul argues that the idea that he did not receive it from the Jerusalem elders but directly from God proves that there is only one gospel message. I guess my question for that when you're talking about postmodernism and relative truth, the world today, a lot of people would say that having received the Spirit of God, God directly speaks to them a measure of truth that becomes subjective, okay? So in the postmodernistic world that's dealing with a relativistic truth, would you say in that statement, I want you to clarify, did the message or the gospel message the Apostle Paul get, did it in any way submit to the apostles in Jerusalem? So in other words, was, did he get the gospel message and maverickly, without consulting the Jerusalem elders and, and leadership, did he not take what he had said he received from God and submit it to the council in Jerusalem? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Good question. Uh, we know because the Word of God says that he actually, uh, after receiving the revelation of the gospel message, he took it to uh, Jerusalem and met with the, the elders in Jerusalem, and the message matched up perfectly. And so, uh, which proves that there is only one gospel message. God gave it to all of them, and, uh, and they all received it, and there's a, a, a great uniformity of, of the message in the whole New Testament. Yeah, please. Just follow up where I'm hitting. Uh, would you say then that, because this is a big thing that people do say, okay, as Paul. Paul received truth from God, divine revelation, okay? And so the gospel message. Would you then, I guess, clarify that anybody in this postmodernistic world that claims to have a measure of truth, that it would have to, that even Paul himself allowed for it to be confirmed first by the apostles. We know one case that said he spent 15 days with Peter. There's multiple times that we do find him in consultation with the Jerusalem elders, them that are present that have the gospel. So in other words, taking a postmodern idea, which is truth is relative, would you elaborate on the fact that perhaps any truth that is gleaned today, would it have to submit the way that Paul submitted to confirming the truth that he received from God. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. It does. We are, there's, a, there's three ways we, we get truth. One is through the Word of God, one is through the man of God, and one is through the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, we receive truth, but it's subjective to, to, to our capability of receiving it and, and our own biases, and sometimes uh, we can get in the way. So everything that we receive from the Spirit, it has to be aligned with the Word of God. And in his day, he did it through the, through the men of God that God placed. They didn't have the New Testament written yet. And so in our day, we do it through the Word of God that's, that's already written. So anything that we experience among ourselves, we have to align it with the Word. If it, if it goes against the Word, the Word is, is right. We're wrong. And um, so that's, that's, just, that's just what the Scripture says. Amen. Everything has to follow the Word. Thank you. Very, very good questions. I think we have another question on the other side of the room. 
Yes, the gentleman back here asked a question about Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer and uh, that that record did not state that he needed to receive the Holy Ghost or received it, let's put it that way. Um, and I'm not for sure if it was, if you addressed that or not, but I, I wonder if you could help me with my thinking because my thinking could be wrong. But um, one of the things I think I understand is that the text, when those scrolls were written, were somewhere between 30 and 35 feet would be the maximum length because a man could not hold in his hands anything more than that. And if we were reading the text, we would have not started in 16 because there would have been no way to know where we were at. We would have read uh, starting in chapter uh, at the very beginning. Um, because Luke is writing and acts as the longest book uh, that is written in the New Testament, could it be that possibly he had already covered that in 2 uh, and 10? In uh, 16, it is a Gentile. There's no need to recover it again. In 19, though, he does take the time to say it because he's covering a uh, rebaptism at that point also. Uh, do you think my thinking could be that wrong or right that, or need help that possibly uh, was already covered and because of the need to cover other things that he wanted to get that he did not do that. And yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that you're, you're completely right. Um, just, we, we can't make an inference on what we don't see, um, but we can um, make, we can see, we can read what it says. And, and we know what it says that, that they were baptized. And we have to assume that the rest of it's correct because that he was, he got the Holy Ghost because the Bible says it's, it's required. And, um, and so, the, the scriptures, the scripture already appro already proved that the death, burial, and resurrection is required, and it already happened in, in like you said, Acts chapter uh, two, Acts chapter uh, ten, uh, it's in uh, nineteen, and so that that's enough to, to show with the witnesses. There's two, there's three different groups of people: the um, Jews, Gentiles, and and um, and Samaritans, and they all show that they had to have the death, burial, and resurrection uh, for salvation, but um. Uh, there's other, there's other places where it shows that they, they received baptism. Uh, it doesn't have to show they received the Holy Spirit at that point. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they received it the next day. So we just don't know. But um, or probably they didn't receive it that same day. We don't know. But uh, we do know what's required. Okay. I have a question right at the front. Um, going back to what Brother Kenneth Bo had mentioned uh, about um, cultural truth, um, you mentioned how Jesus said Lord in the Greek, trying to respect the, uh, the Hebrews' culture, uh, but he was ref making reference to Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses would use this as saying that he, he would be preaching uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, um, and I, would, I just am asking to, if you could bring some clarity or shed some light on that, because I could see how their thinking would, or that he was would, preaching 
or not that he was preaching, but you said that he said Lord while making reference to Jehovah, trying to respect their culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Jehovah's Witness would, would try to confront you on that and say that Jehovah is, do you see what I'm getting at? No. No. I'm sorry. Um, sorry. Yeah. Brother Bo, could you clarify that? I think one of the elements that uh, goes under the um, surface sometimes is Jesus built a certain elasticity into the message. We see this in his earthly ministry in statements like, I have sheep you know not of. There were times he attempted to expand their mental thinking even knowing they weren't there yet. So there is a certain elasticity with the original one and only gospel message. This is demonstrated when it is placed on the confines that you just mentioned and did a very adequate job in Acts 2 to the Jewish nation and Acts 8 to the Samaritans, which were half Jew, half Gentile. Acts 10 to the Gentile nation, and I would extend that into Acts 19, which are former disciples as well. We sometimes don't recognize that as, as a as a quantity of people, but it is very relative. What you have in the book of Acts is the elasticity of the message being placed upon general people. It's not generally placed upon individuals such as in Acts 16. That was questioned a while ago. That's not the intent of the book. The intent of the book is the acts of the the apostles and the direction of the church. And many times the individual is under the surface. They don't stop to document that. But when it comes to large movements of the elasticity of the message, one gospel, how to apply that one gospel to each and every segment, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, former members of the church. And then once you try to apply that, it must be submitted back to the original format given by the original apostles. And that closed with the writing of the New Testament. I don't know if that's answering your question. Thank you, Brother Bo. All right, we'll go all the way to the back and then over here. I just received a a question uh, via text message on page number 14 verses in Acts 20, verses 28 through 31, mentions, I know that, that after I leave, savage wolves will come along you and will not spare the flock. It seems like this has already happened. Is it realistic for the gospel message to be restored in this world? And finally, what makes you not the wolves? <laughs> uh, this did already. This is this is this is uh, predicting the, the great falling away. But it, it's something that's to, to show you in this paper is is that was the need that the apostle Paul had to to preserve the gospel. So uh, this, the idea that he, um, for three years, day and night, that means every single day and night, he cried with them and warned them. It, it just shows the, the need that they ha- he wanted to preserve it. And so this, this just explains to us that the importance that we have to preserving the gospel that we have. Um, what was the second part of that question, Brother Mayo? 
they said, uh, how do we know if we're, if we're wolves? <laughs> how do, if we're, yes. we're wolves? If we're distorting the message. Simply. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll come over here. Why don't we just trade off? We'll go over here and then back here and then come back to. Hi. Um, I, I want to ask about the one, only one gospel. Now, are we talking about like, okay, we know that Jesus had taught us that, you know, he came to, uh, uh, oh, wow, it went away. Um, um, how that he taught, you know, that he was coming to take away the law of sin and death, to, come to fulfill the law of sin and death, and he died. And then we have what we preach, Acts 2.38, you know, the baptism, Holy Ghost and filling, repentance. And uh, we, we go on down the line, even with our dress down the line, we have different teachings. Now, are we talking about this being only one gospel with all of these teachings, or are we talking about just the gospel of salvation? The gospel, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection, which is the gospel of salvation, right. is the core, and, and, and the rest is all connected. So it's all connected. So we look at the uh, Judaizers, it seems to me, and from reading there, that these Judaizers, they had Acts 2.38, but they had other areas that they were wrong also. And, and the Apostle Paul confronted that. And um, so the only the one faith is, is the whole New Testament. But the, the core of it is the, is, the, is the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, the, the good news. So all of it matters. All of it is connected. Okay. Good. All the way to the back. Well written paper, Dr. Bomeister. Oh, thank you. Um, so a vast majority of Christendom teaches belief in Jesus with support of scriptures such as John 3.16, Romans 10.9, Acts 22.16. Could these scriptures be valid in the gospel message? Please explain. Yeah, they're all, they're all valid in the gospel message. Um, John 3.16, uh, that he died for us so that all whosoever will will be saved. Uh, that's that's the inclusivity of the uh, of the gospel, uh, Romans ten nine that we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that we shall be saved. That's that's talking about us. We're the church uh, that was written to the to the um, uh, to the Roman church that was already saved. They were already baptized in Jesus' name. They already had the Holy Ghost. Already living a holy life, and uh, and He was telling them that that for you to continue to be saved, you had to con continue to believe the, the gospel message. There's a message that people believe that once saved, always saved. We don't believe that. Once uh, you're saved, you have to continue to believe this. Uh, is there a, was there another scripture that you said? I can't remember. Acts 22.16. Acts 22.16 shows that I was, I was just in a Bible study last night, and they said, uh, baptism doesn't wash away thy sins. And I said, yeah, it does. You show, show me one scripture where it shows that. It washes away your sins. I said, okay, when I show you the scripture, what are you going to say? So I gave him the scripture, and he looked at it. He pondered. The only answer he had was after about me drilling him for about 30 minutes because he kept jumping around, just tell me what you think that means. Finally, he had to twist it and say, that's spirit baptism. But it's not. It was water baptism. <laughs> so water baptism washes away thy sins. That's what, that's what the Bible says, Acts 22, 16. Anybody have any questions? Hey, very good. Yeah, I think right down here at the front, okay. we've got a couple of gentlemen there, and then we'll come across to this side. 
Um, hello, Dr. Uh, Baumeister. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, my question is, earlier you said um, a couple hundred million uh, people are filled with the Holy Ghost, but are they all in truth? And you said no. Um, my question is, how is that possible that they can have the Holy Ghost and not be in truth? Good question. Um, I grew up uh, Catholic. Uh, my parents were Catholic all the way back to the 16th century. Uh, my, my family, my genealogy is, is all Catholic. Um, but I grew up as a 10-year-old boy in a Catholic church looking up at my mom on the, on the bench watching her speak in tongues in church as a Catholic, Catholic charismatic. And I'm very good friends with um, Marilyn Kramer, who was one of the, the main leaders of the, of the Catholic renewal. And um, I shouldn't be saying all this because it's on the radio. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I saw her speaking in tongues. But yet, how could she speak in tongues if she doesn't have truth? Well, when you have someone come to your, your church and they're praying at the altar and they get the Holy Ghost, does that instantly mean that they have truth? It doesn't. The Bible gave us, gave us a promise that he'll pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Everyone will, uh, is, is able to receive this gift. But it's up to the person to allow that Holy Spirit to direct them to truth. And so, um, so I had to grapple with that for a few years. To, to, how, how is this possible? Why does he heal people that aren't saved? Why does he heal those that, uh, that believe but yet don't even know the gospel message and don't, don't even know that Jesus is, is the almighty God? How did, how did he get healed? But it's by their faith. And God always responds to faith. He doesn't respond to need. He responds to faith. And if you believe, he'll respond to it. And these people are seeking him. Uh, the, the very first time I felt the Holy Spirit, it wasn't in a Pentecostal church. It was in a Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I walked up there. I didn't feel anything in comparison to what I felt at the Rock Church there in Sacramento. Uh, nothing in comparison. But I felt the Holy Spirit because God was reaching my soul. And he brought me to the, to the Rock Church in Sacramento. And he brought me to truth, and, um, and I thank God for truth every day of my life. I, I, it's, it's, it's precious to me. And, um, but yeah, he, he's in his poor out of spirit upon all flesh. It doesn't matter who they are. He's, he's wanting everybody to be saved. Amen. Any, any questions? Got uh, just time for just a few more questions. Let's go um, down this way. Okay, let's start over here then. Hi, I'm Jeff Bradley from Houston. I probably am the person that understands what you say more than anybody. I was in a Benedictine monastery in France, studying Greek, Hebrew, Latin. And then I was at the Angelicum in Rome, studying for the priesthood. And I was in Assisi with a group of seminarians. And maybe I'm a postmodernist. But my question is something on the lines of your uh, comment. And I've told my friends long before I came to Pentecost that I've been speaking in tongues, and I knew the Holy Spirit. The question was, did I have the fullness of truth? That was the optimal question. I had truth, basic truth, but many things were missing. So it took 30 years for me to find this. Wow. You didn't come looking for me. I went looking for you. Jesus. So my question to you is, in this whole scenario of oneness and uh, that we all should be one, which I think is a, certainly a valid statement and Amen. something that we should all hope for, 
is it not more proper instead of spending countless hours of divisiveness in your evangelical outreach, your evangelizing, to look for commonality because when you start with the premise of we have it all and we have it correctly, is that not a huge turnoff to many people? And I'd like you to address that because for me, I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. If you come and you know you're looking for the something that you don't know what it is, isn't it okay to say, yes, there are people in this world, in the Baptist, the Methodist, the Episcopal, the Catholic Church, that have some truth. They just don't have it in its completeness. Right. So what do we do with the Jeff Bradleys of the world who spoke in tongues and experienced the Holy Spirit? And how do you say, why did it take 30 years for the Spirit to bring me to the truth? That's my question. Good question. The, um, the drawing of the Spirit in my life was was a was a thing that brought me to it. I wanted more, and um, and I think that's what you're saying. You you wanted more, and um, and truth is is the core of it. Uh, my 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 mother um, is very deeply involved. She's 84 years old right now. Um, her mother her her sister's a, a Catholic nun in in Mexico, and I'm deeply entrenched in Catholicism, and um, but. You know, we have to we have to be like the Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, when you see Apollos preaching in Acts chapter uh, 18, at the very end, he's preaching he's preaching what he knew was truth, but it was a little bit off, and um, maybe it was a lot off, but it was powerful, and he had he had anointing on his life, and he definitely had experience with God, and um, we don't know how much he had. Uh, there's an inference that possibly. He only had uh, the Holy Spirit, um, or he only had John's baptism, maybe. Uh, but he believed that Jesus was Messiah. And instead of bashing him, Priscilla and Aquila brought him aside and expounded to him the, the scriptures more clearly. And so the commonality that he, he, they formed there was to, to win him. The, the, my question at the very beginning was, do we need to have dialogue with, with other uh, uh, religions and uh, and my personal, personal opinion is no. Um, do we need to be able to have commonality with people, individuals, individual leaders, individuals, uh, members of churches, individual uh, leaders of other organizations, other fellowships, other um, uh, completely false religions? Yes, because we want to reach them. We want to reach their souls. But I'm not talking about a whole group. I'm talking about individuals. And that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. And they, and they, they won that man and in turn, they won all his, his people. But if you look at the, the, the New Testament, the New Testament, they weren't so um, into um, winning groups. They, you don't see the Apostle Paul going to the, the Jewish leaders and trying to, um, to, to win a whole group, even though that's possible. He, he, he was, he was reach, reaching individuals, reaching Jewish individuals, reaching Jewish priests, uh, reaching uh, Jewish uh, um, members, G Gentiles, and um, and we're seeing right to this day, right now, 
the apostolic movement has seen whole organizations come into God, come into truth. Whole organizations that only had just a form of godliness, but now they have uh, the, the truth. And we're seeing this happen in uh, many places. I don't want to name them because I'm on the internet. But it's happening all over the place. And we're going to see greater revival. And it's going to happen by, by individuals and by us doing what Brother Bradley talked about. By us reaching those individuals that are key uh, people to reach whole nations, to reach whole uh, church organizations. And I believe it's going to happen. It's, it's already happening. But I, I believe it's going to happen even more. And I feel the Holy Ghost of this. Amen. I feel, I feel God strongly that we're, we're, we're sent out to, to preach this gospel and to reach nations. And not just to reach... Uh, small little individuals, and that's it. But we need to reach these key individuals, and they're they're out there. We just need to be, you know, more uh, more uh, uh, confident, more uh, um, full of the Holy Ghost, more sensitive to God's Spirit, and just start doing it. And um, it's going to happen. Amen. Does that help, Brother Bradley? Man, all right. We are winding this down. We've got time for just these two more questions here in the middle, and then we'll carry on. Let's. Uh, okay. Okay. So right back. Next one behind. So um, we know that uh, Jesus, he went around preaching in synagogues and, and throughout all the cities. So with that being said, Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. How does Jesus preach the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection if he is still alive and the Holy Ghost not poured out yet? Good, good point. Um, he did, though. We know he did because he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. So he's, he spoke about his resurrection. We know he, he talked about the Holy Ghost in John 7, 38 and 39, where he said the Holy Ghost wasn't given yet because he wasn't glorified yet. So he did speak about the death, burial, and resurrection, and he, he spoke about it in the um, actual application of it in saying you, you must be born of the water and born of the Spirit. So he did in both ways. He did it in, in the, in basically in his prophetic manner and also in the actual application of it. Okay. I think we'll make this the last question. Um, so, um, what I, I just wanted to make a few comments and see where you, what you think. Um, you know, the Bible says in John chapter four, you know, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So I heard a couple men talking that they had received the spirit of God, but yet they haven't came to the fullness of truth. And I noticed that a lot of things happen when somebody is able to worship God, they must be able to worship him in spirit and truth. Okay. <clears throat> but also the Bible says, just a sec. That baptism is the circumcision of the heart. So people have received part of the gospel, but since their heart is not circumcised, sometimes it takes period of time for them to come to the understanding of the truth or seek the truth but those that receive baptism in Jesus name they tend to come to it quicker because their heart is not um, because their heart is already cut and they're able to receive the truth more easily I just wanted to know if you could expand on that or what do you think about that in general I think that the more people get in the Holy Ghost, the more they're open uh, to truth. I, I think um, uh, in the case of my mother, um, there was a time that she was seeking God's spirit. She was visiting Pentecostal churches um, and went right back to where she was at. Um, and there's only a, a certain point that you get to. When I felt the Holy Spirit the first time when I was in the Catholic church, it wasn't even 
comparable. And I, I don't believe most uh, Catholics feel the Holy Spirit in, in their churches. Uh, I felt it because I was in a, in a, in a venue where they, they, they preached or they taught the Holy, Holy Spirit baptism, and, and it opened me up to that. But, um, but you, you, once you receive, once you, once you, uh, you're, um, you receive the Holy Spirit, if you follow it, you'll, you'll follow truth. Um, and God's, God's promise is, is there. He's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. He loves, he didn't die for Pentecostals only. He died for the whole world. He died for Baptists. He, he died for Catholics. He died for Muslims. He died for all of them. And, and, and so he's going to, he's, he'll fill a Muslim with the Holy Ghost, even if you don't believe in the, in, in, in truth all the way. Uh, he'll fill anybody with the Holy Ghost because he wants them to be saved. So he's, he's wanting them to, to get truth. So the Bible says the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. We just have to be uh, sensitive to it. And, and us that have received it, we just need to thank God that he, he gave it to us, that he had mercy on us, that we, we were able to receive it. Amen. Dr. Baumeister, thank you so very much for your comments this afternoon.